Welcome to Lessons from the Helpful Dead, where you'll learn the world is not what it seems and you are much more than you think you are. Here you'll learn about positive and reassuring messages from supposedly dead people, whose main purpose is to help us. Find out what happens after we die, why we're here, how we got here, where we're going, and discover that you are really a powerful eternal spirit. I'm Dan McEnany. In today's episode, uh, we're going to talk about British airmen who died in the 1930s and an American pilot who died in 1972. They don't have a lot to say about (coughs) conditions in the afterlife, but they did have some very important information to reveal. Their cases are some of the best examples of the proof of the survival of the personality after death. In the 1970s, John Fuller, a respected author, wrote two books about uh, these airmen, and those books are The Ghost of Flight 401 and The Airmen Who Would Not Die. The logical conclusion of anyone who reads those well-documented accounts of events would have to be that people have certainly communicated to, to us after death, Uh, usually through mediums or channels who act as a kind of a radio receiver, allowing the dead personality to tune into our our frequency here on Earth. The, uh, The dead people may speak directly through the medium, using his or her vocal cords as the physical method of getting the message across, or automatic writing is employed, where the medium either writes or enters on a keyboard the message or a Ouija board may be used. Flight 401 was an Eastern Airlines flight to Florida on a Lockheed L-1011, which crashed in the Everglades in 1972 and claimed many lives. Not too long after the crash, one of the dead crew members, a flight engineer, started appearing on flights of similar L-1011 aircraft in the galley and other locations, warning crew members about something dangerous that might happen on the plane. In one case, he warned of a fire in an engine, which did in fact occur, but the plane landed safely. This flight engineer was very concerned about his family, and he wanted them to know that all was well in his present condition. He communicated through a Ouija board operated by a psychic and John Fuller. Now, interestingly, the psychic Elizabeth was a flight attendant who was hired by Fuller to do research. She developed her psychic abilities while doing the research. Eventually, she and Fuller were married, and she told her unusual love story in a separate book, My Search for the Ghost of Flight 401. The flight engineer, whose name was Don Repo, was intensely eager to have Fuller communicate with his family to reassure them. Fuller was reluctant. He was quite skeptical and fearful of coming across as a kook to the dead man's wife and daughter. He had an established reputation as a logical, hard-headed, journalistic investigator. Accordingly, Fuller asked for a number of pieces of information that would demonstrate to him and the dead man's wife and daughter that it was really repo. As you know from a previous podcast that uh, this is commonly called evidential, which is information known only to the person who's communicating and those he wants to communicate to. So to prove to his family that uh, it was really him, Repo provided this kind of information, and it certainly made no sense to Fuller. 
Now, this information included an unusual name, Sassy, for his wife Alice, a reference to a wastebasket with pennies in it sitting in the boys' room and to mice in the bedroom closet. He also told Elizabeth that her gold ring would break and that they would find a penny if they read the New York Times. Now, when Fuller and Elizabeth met with Repo's wife and daughter, they learned he had nicknamed his wife Sassy many years earlier, but had not called her that for many years. There was also a wastebasket in which he used to save pennies that they'd moved into the boys' room, and there were recently mice in the attic, and the only way to reach the attic was through the bedroom closet. That satisfied Repo's family and Fuller and Elizabeth that it really was him. And what about the ring and the penny? Well, weeks after this message was received, Elizabeth's ring did suddenly break, though it showed no signs of any cracks when they examined it at the time of the message. And regarding the penny, a week after he and Elizabeth had met with the family, which was months after the message, while they were eating breakfast at a delicatessen, Fuller picked up a Sunday New York Times from a large stack of them on the floor, and he brought it back to their table. Now, midway through the paper, he suddenly stopped. There on the front page of the travel section was a picture of the instrument panel of a modern plane. Precisely over the part of the photo that showed the landing gear signal light was a bright, shiny new penny. This was not a photo of a penny. It was the actual penny itself. And the landing, uh, the landing gear light that uh, the penny was on had been the indirect cause of the crash of Flight 401. It was several incidents like that which uh, turned Fuller from skeptic to open-minded investigator. It's easy to understand why he became more uh, open-minded, and it's difficult to read of this documented experience and come to any other conclusion than this, that Don Repo had survived. Fuller then went on to research and write another book, The Airmen Who Would Not Die. Exceptionally well-detailed and documented, It recounts messages relayed through the highly respected British psychic Eileen Garrett by the British airmen who had died in two separate crashes. The first was the crash of a 32-foot monoplane, the Endeavour, in March 1928. Its pilot was Captain W.G.R. Hinchliffe, one of the most decorated and seasoned pilots in England, who had shot down seven German planes in the First World War. Now, his one passenger on that 32-foot monoplane flight was a prominent British heiress, uh, Elsie McKay. The previous year, uh, Charles Lindbergh had completed his famous New York uh, to Paris trip, and Hinchliffe had always wanted to fly across the Atlantic. With his flying career drawing to a close, the financial rewards of, of completing such a trip were also appealing to him. He needed more money to provide adequately for his wife and family. Elsie McKay wanted to be the first woman to cross the Atlantic, but she dared not let her father, Lord Inchcape, know about her ambitions. So she secretly retained Henschliff to purchase the airplane, paid him 80 pounds per month and all expenses, guaranteed him all the prize money, and said she would insure his life for 10,000 pounds. A lot of money. In return, he had to promise to keep everything secret so her father would not find out until after they were airborne. Now, with all of her influence, Elsie McKay had arranged for them to to take off from the mile-long RAF runway near Grantham, England, 
and it, because it was the only one long enough to handle the takeoff of the plane with its full load of gasoline. The RAF notified Hinchliffe they could no longer make the runway available after March, so he was forced to make the difficult east-to-west trip in less-than-ideal weather, and no radio was aboard in order to save weight. The plane ran into difficult weather on its planned route and was lost at sea. Very shortly afterward, Hinchliffe started communicating uh, through a Ouija board to a Mrs. Earl, a woman who had some psychic ability and who also knew Eileen Garrett, the leading psychic in England at that time. Now, Hinchliffe was agitated and concerned. He related some of the details of the flight to Mrs. Earl, how they had hit bad weather on the planned northern course, and he was forced to, to uh, fly many hundred miles south, almost reaching the Azores. His major concern, however, was to contact his wife because he knew that, unknown to Elsie McKay at the time, the purchase of the insurance policy on his life had never been transacted. Now, this meant that unless something were done, his wife Emily would be in dire financial straits. Wanting to help, Mrs. Earle enlisted the aid of Arthur Conan Doyle, the famous creator of Sherlock Holmes, whom she knew slightly. She wrote Emily Hinchcliffe, Hinchliffe herself, but uh, she also asked Doyle to contact her, since the expected reaction of most people to messages conveyed through a psychic would be disbelief. Emily was highly skeptical, but Doyle's prestige was enough to convince her to meet with Doyle and Mrs. Earle, who had decided that it would be preferable to ask Eileen Garrett to act as the medium for Captain Hinchliffe rather uh, than continue with the Ouija board messages through Mrs. Earl herself. Now, as I mentioned, Emily was indeed highly skeptical, but so much personal information was provided over a few meetings, again, that's the evidential, that could only be known to her husband. She gradually came to believe it was his personality that was communicating to her through Eileen Garrett. Now, the evidential included such mundane details as where to find a pair of studs and a plot plan for a piece of property they owned, which Emily now needed to sell, that had been caught stuffed behind a drawer. He also told her that he had indeed worn a watch that uh, she was wondering if he had worn, something significant only to the two of them. I'm going to stop here because uh, this podcast is already long enough and we will continue our discussion of Captain Hinchlift in the next podcast. Again, I'm Dan McEnany bringing you Lessons from the Helpful Dead.